And thank you for joining us in episode 61 of the Making It in Asheville podcast. This is a very special Father's Day episode, and we are joined by Keenan Lake, the owner, operator, creator of My Daddy Taught Me That. Let's start with a quick quote by Keenan. I, I work two full-time jobs, so I'm still a full-time social worker because that's, you know, I love social work, but it also is my, my only paid revenue, my paid income. But what I would love to do is do my daddy taught me that full time. I would love to see my daddy taught me that go national. I would love to see the program um, serve. You know, one of the things that happens within this program is that when we take these trips and we go on, you know, we show up in these places with 40 kids, 50 kids. People are like, oh, my gosh, where's, you know, how are you even funded? How do you do this? You know, how is this happening? We need one of those programs here, you know. And so, you know, every quarter, at least, you know, every month or two, we get phone calls from different states and different cities like look we've read we heard about you guys are you guys planning to start one in charlotte are you guys planning to start one in greenville south carolina you know what would it take to get one here and so you know what we've said is that we want to be able to do consulting and and doing this nationally but we first of all have to make sure that the foundation is is built here first we have to move to a program we cannot continue to uh, be a program that's solely based on volunteers it won't sustain itself it won't work we have to put people in positions that are being employed and play. I can't continue to be, um, to do 100% of my daddy taught me that. Welcome to Making It in Nashville, a podcast where you get to hear the stories behind some of your favorite artists and businesses here in town. Each episode, we interview a different local Ashevillian to uncover how they are making it in Asheville and provide you with actionable insights from each conversation. And we're your hosts. That was Sarah, and I am Tony, and we are a husband and wife team that moved to Asheville in May of 2019. Since then, we've set out to answer a single question that was, how does one make it in Asheville? Uh, We, when moving to Asheville, weren't sure how we were going to make it, and so these conversations are part discovery and part storytelling to help you perhaps learn how you might make it in Asheville yourself or inspire you uh, to just learn more about what's happening in the city today. Uh, Before we get into this episode, a very special episode, I want to give you a quick little uh, note about our sponsors, Range Urgent Care. They sponsor this episode and this season. And there's a uh, particular story in my own life that stands out as a as I'll call it scarring for many reasons. Oh boy. <laughs> um, but it, it makes this uh, opportunity to tell the range story that much closer to home for me, right? So Ranged, in case you aren't familiar, is a uh, urgent care facility that's fundamentally changing the way urgent care is delivered, uh, i.e. very transparent pricing, either it's $150 every trip or $30 a month if you have an annual subscription and the subscriptions change based on family size and if you want to do it for your company, etc. But uh, let's just say uh, Range Urgent Care didn't exist in New York City in the calendar year 2012. Uh, and so when I uh, came home from a night out with my good friends, it was a college reunion party in New York, uh, I made a silly mistake and cut my hand. And I have never necessarily at that point. How did you cut your hand? I will. Uh, so I had seen an Anthony Bourdain uh, travel show episode <laughs> where he opened a beer with a chef's knife. And I just I couldn't find a bottle opener at my friend's apartment. And so I was like, I got this guy's chef's knife. Anthony Bourdain did it. And I opened it. No problem. What I 
tried to do was control how far the knife went after opening the bottle. And in controlling it, I pulled the knife back into my hand. Long story short, lots and lots and lots of uh, more blood than I was expecting or anticipating. And so we made a decision to go to uh, the local uh, emergency room. Uh, what the, time was this? This was in the wee wee hours <laughs> of the morning. Let's call it nighttime, but, uh, you know, uh, single digit hours. Um, and it was a very long wait. And then when we finally saw uh, whatever you I, I loosely considered a doctor, I think it was like a, you know, a medical student or something like it. Uh, it, it was not necessarily pleasant. It was tired and, and we were... Uh, you know, being young men, and and I thought it was funny, but also scary. And so long story short, I have these very tiny little scars in my hand. Um, It looks like a division symbol. It looks like a little division symbol on my left hand. And uh, that is a scar, sure. But the scar really was that (laughs) I think it cost, I don't know, like it rounds to $10,000 was my hospital visit for a couple scars in the middle of the night in New York City. And that is something that has honestly kept me from really going back to doctors or, or seeking medical attention since that moment. And I think that's ridiculous. I don't think that that is a sustainable model. I don't think that that is something that I would subscribe to philosophically. Like I would want that if I were hurt or in, in danger or, or thought that there was something wrong with me, I'd go seek medical attention. But this one little silly mistake <laughs> that I made in the wee hours of the morning and the tiny scar and the... And the years and years of trying to pay off that um, hospital bill has kept me from seeing doctors. And then we moved to Asheville, and then we hear about range, and then I <laughs> sign up for a $30 a month annual subscription uh, to a, a, a business that I can pay for with insurance or pay out of pocket. And it just seems so right so that if you uh, hear that story and there's something about it that uh, resonates with or, you. Or if you try the Anthony Bourdain, tr- I mean, we are not encouraging that don't at do all. It. But um, if you it. happen to do something that's stupid, <laughs> no offense, Tony, uh, then, you know, you can go to Range Urgent Care and yep. have medical attention. It's important to note that they are they are not the ER. So Mm-mm. if you do have an emergency situation, like... Bone sticking out. Yeah, Very you different. need to go to the emergency room. But if you have a sore throat or you have a sprained ankle or you just want to get something checked out, Range Urgent Care can save hand. you thousands of dollars and a lot of time. Um, anyways. Yeah. So, we it, so yeah, range, <laughs> range. We we've loved them, and we're so thankful for their sponsorship and this season. So I wanted to tell that quick story as we round out this season, mm-hmm. um, because it's something that I've alluded to now uh, a number of times in some of these uh, pre-episode intro kind of shout-outs. And so what we'll conclude with is if this story it is something that you th- could see yourself doing or have done in the past and you want a better solution, we re- welcome you to visit makingitinashville.com forward slash range. And uh, the cool thing is, is that you can get a free month of your annual membership at range. So by signing up through the link makingitinashville.com forward slash range, you'll get the free month. You can also get the free month by simply using the coupon code and making it in Asheville on their website. And that works for all of the subscription sizes, uh, not just individual, but family and business. And so one more time, thank you, Range, for being the sponsor of this season, season four. Uh, we're glad to have you in the community, and we are so thankful for the work that you're doing. Now, for another person that we are very glad to have in the community and are very thankful for the work that he's doing, 
Let's talk about Keenan Lake. Yeah. So we have come across the program. Uh, my sister taught me that mm-hmm. and my daddy taught me that a couple of times. And I've been really interested in learning more about the founder and Keenan is the founder of My Daddy Taught Me That. And we're going to talk all about more about what that program is. Um, but cool thing is Keenan is a lifelong Ashevillian. He's lived here his entire life. So he's seen a lot of changes. Mm-hmm. And we talk a little bit about those changes that he's seen during in the episode. He's a father of two as well as, I guess, a father of over 100 different yeah. kids here in Asheville through the program. Yeah, so the, the program, my daddy taught me that, is what you know a, a version of an after-school program focused on enriching young men and, and helping them uh, transition, I'd say, from boys into young men by creating a very real um, adult male mentor uh, relationships. And uh, there's a, we go into great detail on some of the programs and, uh, and ways that my daddy taught me that uh, teaches and empowers these young men. Uh, and so this episode's particularly special. Uh, I think that the model that you will hear that uh, Keenan is creating and uh, showing, I guess, to the young men in our community is incredibly powerful, creates for a very safe space for these young men as they ask tough questions. Um, and the retention is incredibly high. And all of these great Things are happening. We just are uh, very excited to share this story with you, our listeners. And there's more to it, right? So uh, we hear some of uh, Keenan's own experiences from being a young man in Asheville uh, and to, you know, present day Asheville. And there has been a lot that's changed and hearing it first person is very powerful, very eye-opening for Sarah and myself, even as some of our kind of throwaway questions that show up at the end of the episodes got different answers today than we maybe have ever heard. And I, and I think it's worth yeah. uh, sharing and, and letting you hear that. It might be eye-opening for you as well. Um, and then the thing that I am so inspired by specifically, and Sarah, I ask you how this feels for you, but hearing Keenan talk about uh, his role as uh, a full-time social servant, right? So he uh, works in social services full-time and then runs this nonprofit full-time in addition to it. Um, his days look incredibly like hard to me and long, and the burden of the responsibility that he bears to these young people is so seemingly heavy that I am amazed and inspired by his, like the service that he brings to this community. It It was an incredible gut check as we were listening and talking uh, about how much more there is for me personally, I'll just say me, uh, to do and to give in the community. I love, I love this story. I can't wait to share it. Yeah, no, I, I definitely feel the same way. And the last thing that we'll say is, um, this is a really interesting example of someone with an entrepreneurial spirit in a different way, right? Because Keenan started this sort of nonprofit program which is all volunteer based Mm -hmm. because he saw that there was a need in the community for young children to have mentors and people to look up to and a place to go and a place where they can talk about whatever issues are coming up in their lives. And so he just started, he just Mm -hmm. did it. And I think whether you're, you're, you're aiming to do something that is in the nonprofit world or not, I think Keenan is a great example of someone who just is an entrepreneur in this own way yeah and uh 
very he was very transparent and so much as you know the this is year eight right we're coming up we're a couple of weeks away from the very uh, day that they they launched eight years ago and you know the first two years of this organization was completely self-funded uh, now they have I, I want to say it's over 160 in uh, my daddy taught me that my sister taught me that uh, like these programs uh, students and a operating budget of two hundred thousand dollars which out of context, seems like, oh, $200,000, that's a lot of money in my, in my world. Yeah. But to support almost 200 kids over the course of a year, that's $1,000 ahead. And when you think about all the transportation, all of the events that they, that they hold, all of the trips that they take, all of the food that they provide at, like after school to these young people, it's, it seems like a shoestring. It seems incredible. It seems like they're moving mountains um, in this program. And so... Uh, if you, uh, a, as we move into it, we, we have a show notes page. Uh, the show notes page is making it in Asheville.com forward slash zero six one. That's the episode number. We'll have links to all of the things that we talk about in this episode on that show notes page. Um, but without further ado, we'll just get into this episode with Keenan Blake of my daddy told me that please enjoy. Keenan, why don't you start just by telling us a little bit about who you are and what you are doing today? So who I am, I'm Keenan Lake. I am a, uh, I'm a husband. I'm a father. Um, I'm a son. Um, I have a, my mom is still alive and um, she's doing well. Um, I'm a social worker. I am a CEO and director. I'm a published author. I'm a mentor. I'm an activist. So, you know, I am. Um, but the one thing that I would like, you know, to be in the forefront of all of that is that um, I'm a child of the Lord. And also um, I am a person who is uh, of servitude of people. Um, I serve people. And then um, I am one who stands up for justice. I hate I hate to see injustices or wrongdoings. And so, um, you know, really, I think I've dedicated my life to serve and and uplift people and community yes and and uh, in the pre-conversation you're a you're a board member and this like the service continues i think that that was like an abridged version of all of the hats and all the roles that you're playing in this community and and uh we're one year into living in Asheville, um and we've we've been following the good work of my daddy taught me that i we're not as familiar with the social work that you do, but that program specifically uh, has been on our radar for so long. And this is, we're loosely calling it our Father's Day episode of 2020. Um, would love if you can just tell us a little bit about that uh, specific hat that you wear as a CEO founder of My Daddy Tell Me That. Uh, not a problem. Um, you know, this story is um, basically my story when I talk about My, my Daddy Taught Me That. And so how my daddy taught me that it came about, you know, where we are, where, where we want to go. Um, I'll start from the very beginning. And so this is a, this is the well-known story of my daddy taught me that, um, you know, my father passed away in 2010. Um, my father was known. He's also a native of Asheville. He was, um, you know, known as an activist and did a lot of work, but he was, 
I said, great, greatly known for two things. One, playing with the original Harlem Globetrotters. Amazing. Uh, so he played with Curly Neal, Meadowlark Lemon, all those guys. And so growing up, you know, seeing those guys in, in the dressing room and, you know, coming to the home and, you know, and so, you know, seeing that was, was really amazing. But to me also, you know, seeing a, a different hat that my dad wore, he, he worked for 30 years at the Juvenile Evaluation Center as a social worker and, you know, working with um, delinquent teens and youth and stuff like that. And so I saw my dad, you know, I never got a chance to see him play basketball. I got a chance to, you know, I was too young and wasn't around, but then, um, you know, heard the stories, but then the, the father that I got a chance to see was the activist, you know, um, the, the man in the community. And, and so, and, and the, the loving father and the loving husband, you know, he was uh, dedicated to my mother, you know, the two of them raised me. I was, I was truly blessed to be raised in a, a, a two parent home. Um, we uh, grew up in a, a lower middle-class family. Both of my mom and my dad worked for the state at the juvenile center. And so, you know, it was just truly blessed to be in the home with both of my parents and, you know, and, and receive the love that I received. Um, as a social worker, I started as a social worker in 20, in 2000, uh, the 2003, 2004, um, was my first year as, as, as a social worker with the county. So, um, for the, about 10 years, I've done, uh, child protective service, social work, dealing with neglected and abused kids over the last seven years has been more community engagement. But the journey began when, um, you know, I started seeing things, you know, early on as a social worker. Um, and what I mean by seeing things was that, um, you know, as a social worker, particularly dealing with neglected and abused kids, I'm in the homes of people all around the county, you know, and dealing with, as an investigator, going and doing investigations on, you know, neglect and abuse cases. And I started seeing that there were a lot of homes that there just weren't, you know, there were single parent homes. There were no men in these homes. And I'm like, you know, what's happening? You know, so just taking a mental note of that. And then when my dad passed away in 2010, it was like, wow, like, okay, what can I do? And so I ended up writing an article to the newspaper. Um, and it was basically just the tone to my, to my dad, you know, to the, to the community and to my dad, like what he meant to the family, what he meant to me. Um, you know, the works that he did, the accolades that he did for the community. And one of a good friend of mine who's a, who has a, a publishing company, he was basically like, um, you know, if you write, you know, five to eight thousand more words, you'll have a book. And the light went off like, well, why don't you write a book that's inspiring not only to your dad, but, you know, to help uplift people and, and help people. So in 2000. Uh, 12, my book was published. Um, I started, uh, I wrote it and it was basically my daddy taught me that. And the book was written to highlight what I feel is one of the biggest problems in our country. I think at the time it was 13.7 million. Right now, I think it's 15.7 million single families in this country. Um, 84% of the single families in this country are headed by single moms. So, you know, that tells us that, you know, if you have a child living in a two parent home, you know, 8.5 of those children are being raised with no positive male influences. And so it was like, wow, this is insane. I had an amazing family. I had a great mom, a great dad. My dad was my best friend. You know, I learned a lot from him. And so why is it that every child doesn't have that opportunity? And so or why is it that not more men are taking the mantle of being in the homes? You know, and so I really started diving into that work. And when you dive into that work, what it tells you is that, you know, these problems when you're talking about absent parents are specifically minority problems or problems for black and brown families. 
And that's just not the case. You know, when you're doing the, the when you live in Asheville, North Carolina, when, you know, the the percentage of us living here has fluctuated, you know, every year it fluctuates one year, 7%, next year it's 8%. You know, at one time it was like 12% and then it went down. I think right now we're, we're a little bit about, a little bit around 9.5% of the population um, is, um, you know, people of color. So that means that, that there's not a lot of people of color living in, in Asheville and, and Buncombe County. And so when I'm doing, when I'm as a social worker, I'm, I have the privilege and, and, uh, of being able to visit homes and, you know, in different areas. So, you know, Barnardsville, Black Mountain, Leicester, Alexander, you know, where not a lot of African-American or black and brown people live. And it's like, no, this is not true. It's not a black and brown thing. This is a human thing. You know, the same things that I was seeing in, you know, Black Mountain, Barnardsville or the trailer park or whatever you want to call it, or the same things that I was seeing in, in the hood or public housing, if you want to mm-hmm. say that. And so it wasn't a, it wasn't a race thing. It was a human thing. And so, um, you know, from there, a, a good friend of mine read my book and a couple of people read the book and they were like, you got some pretty good information. You got some good facts and stuff, but what else are you going to do? And so I had a background of, you know, I love kids. I love working with kids. And so I said, well, maybe I could start a program. At first it was working with men. And I said, well, why not, you know, work with kids so we can start, first of all, um, really being able to instill um, and, and mold and teaching our kids the value of not only leadership, but the value of men and the role that we play within the family. At the same time, you know, the pipeline to prison was really becoming evident and, and the, and the prison, the penal system was really, that was coming down with, you know, African-American, particularly African-American men were being targeted at a much more higher rate. And so it was, it was, it led to the point where it's like, not only do we need to teach our young men, but we need to start preparing them and getting them ready for this systematic structure, these change that is happening in our country that are blatantly targeting, you know, African-American males. And so how do we show them how not to fall victim to these systems, how to see the roadblocks and the pitfalls and how to become aware of that, but then how to be better for it. And so in 2012, I started, my daddy taught me that, and um, it has been a true blessing. You know, I mean, we started off with about eight kids and, you know, we, we, you know, the program was initially designed for a three month program where young men would come learn these skills and trades. And in three months, three months, they would kind of transition and graduate from the program. Well, that didn't last very long. I mean, the first uh, three months, we kept the same eight kids because we had no kids enrolling. Um, two months later, we, we gained four kids. And then like three months after that, we had an influx of kids coming in. So I was going to you know, rolled the kids who had been with me for about six months out. And, you know, one of my young men, his name is uh, DeAndre Smith. He um, he looked at me and said, Mr. Keenan, this is our program. We're not leaving. He said, if you want to bring more kids in, you can bring more kids in, but we're staying. And so the program from that point on has been a year round program. Um, right now we have about 80, 80 to 85 kids in our program, enrolled in our program. We have been up and running for about eight years. We are truly a grassroots organization. The first two years, I literally funded it out of my own pocket, um, you know, and as a social worker, I don't make a lot of money, but it worked because we only had eight kids. And so as it started getting old, the program started growing. Um, we started getting a couple of private donors and, you know, for the for the next uh, four to five years, um, our private donors have been pretty much the bulk of our income. We're starting now to break through to the grant cycle and get more grants and stuff like that. But, you know, we uh, 
you know, my wife says it all the time, you know, she's actually, so four years after we started the, my daddy taught me that program, we started the, my sister taught me that program. Yeah. And so, um, and so she says that we do a whole lot with our youth with a little, you know, mm-hmm. we, um, I don't mind sharing it. We have a, a annual budget for both programs, the, 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 my daddy and the, my sister taught me that program of about uh, $200,000 a year. We have no paid staff. I myself have never gotten paid um, in eight years. We um, we are all volunteer based. Um, 100% of our proceeds go back into the program. But, um, you know, we do a whole lot with a little. We have, you know, and within both programs, we have around 160 to 180 youth in our programs. And so, you know, we've been really uh, doing some really great work. The, the thing that I love most is that our youth know that we're, 100% intentional on their success. And with the curriculum that we developed, we see so much growth and so much, so there's so much opportunity for our youth to, to succeed and, and go far beyond, you know, the threshold and especially what society has uh, expected for them and of them. Yeah. So, so tell us a little bit more about what the program actually entails or what kind of activities you are doing um i think for a lot of people listening they might not, they might this might be the first time they're hearing about this um so i'd love for them to know more about the work that you actually do wonderful that is a great question so are you ready to be blown away no. i can't i can't, can't wait i got we have the website open on the computer screen to the side and it looks like there's a lot that you've done or do so yeah we're ready no, and I'm giving you a hard time, but no, I'm, I'm so humbled and, and so blessed. Um, but no, so what we've done and what, what has happened is I created a, a curriculum, so to speak, to to how the program runs and functions. And so it's basically a four-tier um, component to the program. The first tier is what we call, our, our, we call our men discussion groups or program. The kids like to call them program. Mm-hmm. And so um, for the boys, we meet Mondays and Wednesdays. At the very least, the girls meet meet Tuesday and Thursday at the very least. But what we do is we have these men discussion groups that start in the evening time around six o'clock. Um, and this is all post COVID um, from about six to eight. We have these men discussion groups and we focus on addressing the, the issues at hand. So we talk about the privatization of prison, third grade reading test scores. Um, we showed the young men how to tie a tie. We have guest speakers from the U.S. District Attorney to the Chief of Police to women to talk to our young men about how to be respectful towards women, what women look for in men and, you know, how to engage. Uh, we have uh, STD, STI prevention programs within making proud choices and love notes. And so really being intentional on the programming, um, we have a, 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 liter- a financial literacy program, you name it, to really being able to address the kids, you know, where they are. We talk about what's happening locally, statewide, nationally, internationally giving our kids the information that they, you know, they currently need. But to be quite honest, the beauty behind the men discussion groups are the, in fact, themselves, the conversations. So it's not just myself or, you know, three or four or five other, um, you know, volunteers who usually are, you know, older men. Cause I, I love the phrase iron sharpens iron. So having our younger men learn from our older men, but it's not just older men preaching to our kids or telling them this and the third It's our, younger kids having um, dialogue, feedback, and engagement within the conversation. And so to be honest, you know, us older folks, we're learning just as much from the youth as they're learning from us. And so the perfect example, you know, we talk about women and we talk about, you know, as men, this is how you, and well, Mr. Keenan, you got to understand these are not the same women you grew up with. These women are more aggressive. And, you know, one, one conversation that we've had is, 
you know, what we'll do is, you know, we'll get, uh, what happens if we do this? If a girl sends us a text or sends us pictures of, you know, all these, all these new pictures, and then she tells us to meet her in the bathroom, what are we supposed to do? And it's like, well, like that's happening. <laughs> you know, this is really going on. And right. if we don't meet her, then she'll tell everybody we're scared and we're doing this. And so you see what I'm doing. I see your mouth. Uh, you kind of have an eye on your face. Like that's, that's happening. Like, you know, so it oh, puts yeah. us in a situation where it's like, you know what? When I was in high school, these things weren't happening. You know, first of all, we didn't have cell phones and, you know, yeah. so we didn't have to deal with young women sending us news, telling us if we don't meet them and, you know, usually it was the boys chasing the girls, and you know, so it's like, okay, you guys are dealing with some some uncharted territory. But but in the in the in the least, this is what you need to do. You need to circumvent that. And if a girl is sending you um, texts, news, and you know, first of all, how many other guys is she doing this to? And you know, and then on top of that, what you know, you need to look at the integrity and look at the the risk and look at what's going on. And if she's telling you that she wants to do this in school, what's the risk of that? And how can you know? So it's really being able to open up a whole lot more dialogue with giving these young men an opportunity to know, you know, not only what's right and wrong, but, you know, these things are going to be put in front of you. It's, yeah. it's, it's how you, it's how you deal with them. You and, know, if you make the same, go ahead. I was just going to say, and, and the ability to have even that conversation as a teenage young man is, is uh, the, the safe space that you must be creating is incredibly special. Cause I would say if that conversation is happening at all, it's happening with peers who right. might be more hormone driven than a mentor who can look exactly. at it with some perspective and give actual guidance. And, and my question is like, even in a two parent household, a traditional two parent household, I don't know if the average young man would, would feel comfortable having that conversation with a mom or a dad. Um, and I use that as like the traditional setup. Um, so creating a space where a conversation as we'll say complex as that can happen is absolutely incredible. Well, well thank you for that. And you're hundred percent right. You know, so what we get from our youth when we have this stuff and we have guest speakers and you, we dive into stuff, you know, they have said over and over again, we're learning things that we would never learn in school that we would never. So you're, you're hundred percent on the money um, and being able to create that space, you know, to where they're safe and they know that, you know, that their word is going to be valued and they're going to be, they're going to be heard. You know, everybody wants to be heard. It doesn't really matter what, what age you are. Everyone wants to be heard at times and, and seen at times. And so to know that they have that space there is awesome. And that's just one, you know, conversation. Yeah. We, so we talk about so much stuff. We have so many, um, you know, impactful um, programming events that we do in the midst of our programming. So when the kids get there, they eat, we feed them first. So we get there at the building at six o'clock. The first 20 minutes of program, they have a meal. Um, sometimes it's the only meal that they'll get if they're not in school. We, we give them a good, wholesome meal. Um, that's also the, you know, the time where they can, you know, interact and goof off and play around. You know, we have about 30 young men in the program, that, you know, at one time. And even though we have about 80, uh, 80 to 85 enrolled, the beauty behind that is that we don't have 85 at one time. We have kids who are playing sports. We have kids who are working. And so, you know, myself and the volunteers that we have, we'll come in the program and it's like, okay, we got, we got 25 kids, we got 35 kids, we got 50 kids, like, that's a lot of kids, you know, so, you know, but then it's like, okay, we've, we've been blessed not to just walk in there one day and all 85 kids are sitting there because we probably wouldn't have space for that with the, with the place that we're operating out of. And so, um, but, you know, that's, it's just been a really, uh, 
a really beautiful thing, seeing our kids not only transform, I'll, I'll tell you more about that piece at the end. So outside of the, um, the men discussion groups or the program, the next part of our curriculum is our life-changing events. Um, that's also the carrot of our program for our youth. The life-changing events are basically, you know, I'm a native of Asheville. I was born here, raised here. Asheville's my home. I was blessed to get away and uh, play a little, uh, you know, go to college and play basketball. And, you know, I was able to play a little basketball overseas, you know, and, and, and dip into that pro professional arena for a spell. But, um, you know, a lot of our youth are products of their environment. And all they do is go home and go to school and, you know, and then Asheville does not show true diversity. You know, it does not. There's no, you know, not unless, you know, it depends on what diversity you're looking for. But when you're talking about race and, 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 and color and stuff like that, Asheville does not, in my opinion, does not show true diversity. So really being able to get these kids off this mountain, mm -hmm. um, really being able to show them not only what other folks in the world are doing. So we go to Carolina Panther football games and Charlotte Hornet basketball games. We go to museums and uh, we go to Atlanta, you know, a lot to the um, to the Martin Luther King exhibit. And, you know, but one of the other things we do is that, you know, three times a year, we take our kids, we do college campus tours for all of our um, high school kids and really being able to expose them to school and letting them get a feel for that. Um, one of the things that we've done over the last three or four years is um, during Black History Month, we take about 40 kids, both from the boys, uh, 20 from the boys, 20 from the girls to last year, we went to, um, we went to, um, Selma, Alabama, and walked across the uh, Pettus Bridge. Literally, we were shoulder to shoulder with Jesse Jackson. Um, Ten feet in front of us was Hillary Clinton and Cory Booker. And so um, William Bar Barber was there. So really being able to expose these kids to that. The year before that, we went to New Orleans, where we went to the Whitley Plantation. And then we went to a couple of museums. And, and so really being able to expose our kids. We went to Missouri that, that in 2018. 2015, we took, you know, 50 kids to the Million Man March. So really being able to expose these young men to different things again um not only what you know not only showing them what the rest of the world is doing and people outside of Asheville is doing but also showing them what people who look like them are doing off this mountain so they can see that you know there are you know there are areas you know Atlanta Charlotte you know DC where there are higher concentrations of, of African-American people who are thriving who are doing well and so you can see that because if you can see it you can achieve it Mm -hmm. yeah. And so the next component is our education piece. Um, literally, um, you know, we've partnered with every, every kid who goes to school in this, and my daddy taught me that program. We have um, partnered with uh, or even have contact with either the, the teacher, the counselor, the principal, or all three. Huh. And so we've uh, established a rapport to make sure that our kids are not falling victim to that um, with the, within National City Schools uh you know, being in the um, the worst 5%, you know, bottom 5% of the nation in our achievement gap and really being able to make sure our kids, if they need it, have tutors and, you know, make sure that academically that they're on point to the tune that actually next Monday, this coming Monday, the 22nd, we're going to start um, uh, basically a pilot for our own school. You know, we're going to, we okay. have the works to starting that this coming, this coming, um, we partnered with uh, Asheville City School Foundation and we have some good stuff on that. And so really making sure that we have, we're going to start off with about 10 to 15 students and really, you know, for 10 hours a week, these young men will be able to have uh, some form of education, you know, tutors and being educated in a, in a, in a semi, you know, fun type classroom setting. So that's going to be great. Um, outside of. Can I, can I pause you there real quick? 
because uh, yeah. we went quickly through it and, and I want also all of the other uh, work that you're doing through my daddy taught me that, but the achievement gap was news to me and I'd heard you talk about it on another podcast. Um, could you just spend a, a minute or two and, and create some more context on what it means that Asheville is in the bottom 5% nationally on the achievement gap? Exactly. So when you talk about the achievement gap, you're talking about, you know, how it, how education, um, you know, equivalates to, to race and how certain races in our education system are thriving and how some are not. And so the problem here is this, this so first of all, this is not new. It's new, you know, over the last year and a half um, because it's been making more press and more people have been making it, you know, known. Um, almost like the, you know, almost like the, the, the violence that we're seeing with police shootings and stuff like that. It's like these things have, have been happening, but they're just, you know, people have cell phones and recording. And so it's brought mm -hmm. to the light more. Um, with the education gap, we know that when, um, you know, when schools were desegregated and we started merging, that's actually the only year, I think it was the year after um, Stevens Lee, I think the time he moved to Lee Edwards. The only time that it was remotely close was that year after the schools were desegregated and the girls tested around the same as the, the counterparts. The, um, after that, the numbers have consistently decreased and have been getting worse and worse to the point where it's literally becoming, um, you know, criminal. Like, and, and so the numbers is like when you have, you know, 85%, 87% of your, the counterparts, you know, being able to pass and being on or above grade level, you know, and then you're having, you know, 13%, you know, it's, it's like, you know, of, of those, you know, folks in, uh, of color not being on grade level and being below grade level or being just passed through, you know, the, the system that Bush created, no kid left behind is still out there when you're just passing kids through, even if the kid is not passing academically, we're going to push them through mm -hmm. knowing that they're not ready to be in the grade that they're supposed to be going to. And so, um, and so we have seen that. The other problem with that is this, typically when you look at, you know, the achievement gap, or you look at how, you know, certain races and certain groups of people are struggling, you know, you, you always say, okay, well, if this city is struggling financially, you know, or the school system itself is in the bottom half of the state, or, you know, we are one of the, you know, our, our system, our education system, our, you know, city school system is one of the poor, poorly funded city school systems in the state then that might, you know, suggest that, okay, the lack of funding, you know, not enough attention is being, you know, given to that particular um, city with, amongst the state uh, academically. And so, therefore, they are going to struggle because they they're not getting the same funding that other cities and, and stuff are getting. Well, Asheville is number two in the state. We have the second highest cost to, um, when it comes to our city school spending and budget. We're number two. And so, you know, we have the second highest uh funding for our city school system and we're in the bottom we're in the uh, bottom five percent in the nation that poses a problem yeah. and to me what it says is that if there's not a funding issue um we have plenty of funding to address this it then becomes intentional it then becomes that we're we're really not focused on seeing you know youth of color uh succeed academically yeah. and so um, you know, it, it's, there's just no other way around it. It's like, if we know that this has been here, we know that these things are, have been, you know, happening and we know that we have the resources, we have the money, we have all these things to, to, to rectify it, but it's not been rectified and it's continuing to get worse. Then that, then that's intentional.
Yeah. And so, um, and so for me, it's it's basically because I, you know, I, I do think across the you know the the country that we need that our education system needs to be re revised. Mm-hmm. You know, the same way that I went to school, I graduated high school in '96. I graduated college in 2000. But the same way I think education has been taught needs to change. You know, you can't sit in front of a chalkboard with, you know, a classroom, you know, and just write on the chalkboard and expect our youth to get it. Not, not with the exception of um, the conception of like um, cell phones, you know, computers. And yeah. these kids have access to everything we have access to. They can get on their computers and learn just like we can get on our computers and learn. So you have to be more intentional. Um, I will say today's youth, um, their intention span is not what it used to be. They're, 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 they're ready to play video games. They're ready to do this. So what's going to grab their attention? You know, you can't just sit and lecture them, you know, for an hour and a half and, and think that's going to work. And so I think, you know, hands-on, being more, getting our kids moving around. You know, um, one of the things, you know, we talk about the Ron Clark Academy in Atlanta. They do a very good job of, you know, getting the kids interactive, moving around you know, so they can learn and, and be more effective. We, we have to, you know, think about different ways we teach, but also we have to make sure that it's being um, not only inclusive, but we're, we're making sure that we're reaching everybody. And so we also know that, you know, different structures of group, different races have different learning structures, different learning structures, different ways to learn. And so we need to be able to capture that and make sure that we're addressing that. And that's not been the case, particularly here, you know, with, with, with the way that we're, we're experiencing our education system here. Yeah. Um, with that being said, the last component of our program has been um, our job training. Mm. And to date, that's our biggest program. We, we, uh, we invest the most money in our job training uh, program. And how that works is this. Six years ago, we started our job training program where we had uh, seven to eight kids throughout the summer, some of our older kids at the time, we partnered them with an electrician, a carpenter, a plumber, and a painter, and we paid them $10 an hour for 10 hours a week to learn these skills and trades. Um, and it was really good because the kids were able to learn money. You know, just quite frankly, all of our kids are not going to go to school. They're not going to go to college. And so what kind of skills can you have if you're not going to college where you can be able to survive and make an honest living in this world? Um, with the conception of the merchant grant, which we got four years ago and we got it four years in a row, it's been a true blessing. We have been able to expand our job tra- uh, training program exponentially to where now we have about 30 to 40 young people going through our job training program yearly. And so what we did, we expanded it to not only those, uh, you know, carpentry and electrician and plumbing and stuff like that, but we have about, we had about 15 kids over the last two or three years working at the WNC rescue mission. We had extended that to um, computer coding, um, uh, lawn care and lawn care services and uh, car detailing, computer computer graphic and photography. And, you know, we had about three, four kids working in the National Mall. One place is Arsenal. So really being able to put these kids, they wanted to learn business, really being able to uh, put kids and pair them not only with, with uh, you know, job careers that they may like, but really being able to see them earn and, and be able to make, um, you know, $100 a week for 10 hours worth of work has been truly remarkable. Our kids have been responding to that in the best way. It's like, we need a job, Ms. Keenan. So not only do we prepare kids to do interviews, and if you want, you know, if we, you want to get a job at McDonald's or Pizza Hut or something like that, you know, we, we have so many people that we can contact to push you through to learn that. But if you want to learn these other skills and trades as well, 
we have been able to make that happen and, and with our job training program. And, um, That's amazing. And then finally, you know, our kids have access to me 24 seven. So my phone call does not stop. My phone does not, if you can see what's going on this line, my phone <laughs> know. And so, um, you know, it's just been able, you know, with, with, with my connections, with the people that I know and with um, myself being a native of Nashville, the kids are connected to so much opportunity. Mm. Um, there's so much exposure and opportunity to, for me to reach out and say, look, I have a young man who wants to learn more about, you know, stocks and bonds. Can I plug him in with you? Uh, you know, really being able to say, if you're a part of this, my daddy taught me that program, you know, you, you might actually have a, a upper hand because people know my integrity. They know what I stand for and they know the program. So, um, so yeah, so, you know, we, we, we do a lot with a little, we don't have a lot of, of, of money coming into our program. We don't have any paid positions, but we really do a great job with making sure that our kids have access, um, that they have opportunity and that they have the wherewithal to build confidence within them to know that going forward, they can be successful. Yeah. About how many volunteers do you have that work for my daddy taught me that and my sister taught me that, I guess, too. So uh, it was different from the girls and the boys. When the girls first started, um, they, and Leslie, she learned a lot from me. So the first, the first six years, it was just my, well, actually the first two years, it was just me, me by myself. And then, um, you know, uh, two years after that, we had a gentleman by the name of Joe Green. And Joe has been with us for six years. And so then it became a two-man show. Um, over the last, uh, almost two years now, about the last year and a half, we accumulated, uh, five new volunteers, um, a gentleman by the name of Dr. Watson. Uh, uh, we had a gentleman by the name of Nicholas Lovelace, uh, Stephen Smith, who and Stephen Smith is actually the president of our, our board. Wow. Um, a guy by the name of Morgan Jackson. He's a doctor, a PhD. Um, and then we have, um, trying to see if we have, if I'm leaving anybody else out. I might be leaving one person out and I can't think Nick. Um, and then we have a couple of people who come in periodically to do stuff. People like Philip Cooper and JD Carmichael. But uh, yeah, those are the ones that mainly, you know, who, who are, have been our volunteers over the last couple. Oh, Jeremiah. Um, Jeremiah has been one who's uh, been coming fairly regularly. So we have about six or seven volunteers who come pretty much regularly. Um, with the girls, again, they had a, the girls are smart. Uh, when Leslie first started, she started with, um, she started with, um, a core group and she had about eight women who, you know, a couple of social workers from the school and, you know, so she had a, a really good group. And with that, you know, it was cool because they, they, they the social workers and, you know, people who really helped her with the girls. And so, um, yeah, it was great. And so that's, you know, but they're all unpaid. We haven't had any pay staff. We don't have a, a salary for that. And, you know, that's been the MO. Yeah. Nice. And um, before you talked a little bit about, you mentioned that there were some pretty incredible transformations that you've seen throughout the program. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that or even just one particular story if it stands out? Yeah, certainly. So, uh, you know, one transformation, I, I'm actually, you got to see me moving around when I just mentioned, I just mentioned Joe Green. He actually just walked in the door. So I had to go open the door for him. <laughs> but, um, but, uh, one transformation that we've had, and it's been one of our biggest transformations in the program has been, uh, has been basically, um, our, our um, ambassador program. So last year, what we did, we have about five, we have about five, 
to seven young men who have been in our program, you know, for about five or six years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what started happening was um, we started seeing these guys stepping up. So when I talk about, give you an example, when you talk about our um, education program in 2018, we had six youth graduate. We, we had six youth graduate from high school and from the program. Um, and five out of these six young men went to college. Okay. And so that was amazing that five of us, six of our kids went to school. But um, what we were so proud about was that, you know, several of them went to AB Tech and, you know, so they, they still stayed in the program. And it was like, you know, you've graduated the program, but you're still here. And so, um, and so it was like, they were stepping up and doing other things. And so what we created last year was our ambassador program. And the way it works is that our ambassadors are, are youth mentors. And so those guys take on the role and responsibility of being not only a, a second. So if I'm the coach, they're the point guard or the quarterback. Mm-hmm. And so they have taken on that mantle of, you know, really, really helping and working with, with our younger ones. And so it has sparked interest. And so now all the kids coming through want to be ambassadors. Like, well, I'm all, I've been here for four years, Mr. King. I'm ready to be an ambassador because also the ambassadors get a couple of extra privileges. You know, they get to, you know, do a couple of things. And, of course, most of our ambassadors are, you know, 19, 20 years old. And, you know, our program is the, the, the um, age limit for our program. You know, they start at um, ages 12 or in the sixth grade, and they kind of phase out at 19 or when they graduate. Well, it's been such a beautiful thing because, again, these kids are graduating and they're still sticking around. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, they're really wanting to be the leaders and, and step up. And so it shows that we're doing some really good stuff that not only are they still sticking around, um, you know, they want to come back. And, you know, I want so we, which is also leading a good segue. You know, last year we also started a junior program. My daddy taught me that junior working with a younger population ages um, six through 11. Wow. And so um, we have about 25, uh, 20 now. We have about 20 youth in the junior program but our ambassadors are the ones who lead that. And so um, they, they, they work and lead with the younger kids, which is a duplication of the larger program. It's just kind of, for the lack of a better word, it's kind of dumbing things down. So our younger kids, you know, we, we, we can't talk a lot about some of the same things that we talk to all the kids about, mm-hmm. but we see how, we see how our, um, our ambassadors have taken on that program. And so, you know, we're, we're starting, you know, through the COVID, we're starting back up on Monday, the day after father's day. And so, Several of our youth is like, look, we, we got to get going. We got to get started back. So we, we got to get our program started, too. And so it's really, truly been a movement to see how, you know, this thing is transformed and how it's, it's really growing. I love that. And that kind of begs the question, how has this uh, been affected by, you know, the pandemic and COVID-19 and perhaps the inability to physically get together? So um, like everywhere else, you know, we pretty much had to put a halt on a lot of things. You know, the only thing that we've been really able to do is, you know, one-on-one check-ins and, and checking in with families and making sure the families and, you know, helping support families through this time, you know, whether it's, you know, buying food or groceries for families and making sure the families are doing well in that area. We have been able to do the, the job training piece has still been able to, you know, for the lack of a better word, happen. We have, um, we have kids who are still working. We, we partner with MANA. So we have a lot of kids doing stuff with MANA and stuff like that. So they're still ready to earn and want to earn, you know, money and do that piece. But the bulk of the program, particularly the meeting, you know, we can't have 35, 40 kids in a, in a space, you know, um, at this time or having throughout the, the, the whole COVID time. And so um, I will say that it has been hard, you know, for our kids. A lot of, a lot of these kids, you know, people don't understand, 
if you have somewhere that you're supposed to, you know, you're supposed to be, are you going to, at the very least, our kids see us at least, like I said, at the very least, two to three times a week, on average, probably about four or five times a week. And so what happens is, you know, what, what happens is these kids, even though you have a kid who might, you know, be into something that he shouldn't be in or whatever, there's still an accountability piece. And so these young folks want to be accountable and want people to hold them accountable. Yeah. And so, and so it's like, okay, you know what? I know I shouldn't be doing X, Y, and Z, and I can't, I can't do X, Y, and Z because I'm going to see Mr. Keenan and Mr. Joe and that group. I'm going to see those guys, you know, tomorrow. So, or they might get back to them or, you know, this and the third. So it's basically, you see that our kids are not being held accountable. They, they don't have, um, you know, they miss being in a group, the camaraderie, the, the activities. And so it has been, it has been a challenge. You know, it's been a challenge. I'm getting phone calls and I've gotten phone calls from the very beginning of COVID. Like, you know, this is, my child has changed. And, you know, so we're seeing kids not only um, experiment more with drugs and, you know, usually it's marijuana, but, you know, it's actually becoming more serious than marijuana. We have certain kids using pills and stuff like that. And so, you know, we as adults are struggling with this whole social distancing. And, you know, so, you know, we as adults are struggling. So it's, it's not only impacting our, our youth, it's impacting them in ways where, you know, they had to miss the whole second half of school. And so I can't see my, my girlfriend or my boyfriend or my friends, period. Um, you know, we, we, we miss school, but, you know, 50% of school is socializing. You know, I go to school to learn, but I get to socialize because I get to see people. And mm-hmm. at least I get to get dressed up and, you know, people can see me. Now I'm at home and, you know, the video games are, are cool, but it's getting boring. So now what am I going to do? What idle, you know, if it's too much idle time, you know, you're going to find some things to do. And typically when you're young, it's not always the best things to do. And and so we, we've seen a struggle. We've seen a lot of uh, kids that are spiraling and, and, and we continue to push and, try to work through this. So mm-hmm. I don't think we have, um, I don't think we're exempt to, 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 to COVID-19. We have been struggling just like every, every other organization and or business. Um, and just like, you know, people in general. Yeah. So given that what's coming up in the future and, and both, you know, in the next few months, as you sort of start to slowly open things back up again, but also in the long term. Yeah. So what we're planning, you know, and again, you know, this, this whole pandemic has been so, so crazy. You know, you just don't know, you know right now you hear the numbers are rising again and, yeah. you know, so how is that going to affect, you know, we're supposed to not next week, I think it's the 29th or 30th, the state is supposed to go to phase three. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're still, they're saying that that may not happen now because of the, you know, the, the numbers rising, but what we're planning to do is a uh, start program uh, the 22nd, the day after father's day, we will have, um, we won't have, you know, 30 to 40 kids in there. We probably will have 15 to 20 um, that we have enough space where we can kind of socially distance. We'll do all of the protective, you know, um, cautionary things, stages and steps that we can where we have all the kids in the mask that they'll be spaced out enough to where, you know, they're not, you know, up on top of each other. And we'll also have, you know, you know when the kids enter through up the front door, they'll be tested with the fever, make sure they're not high and all kind of stuff. And so, that's the mindset right now is really just to slowly kind of open back up, you know, try to find ways to do more outdoor activities and stuff like that. But um, really start trying to get back in the swing of things and um, just trying to have some kind of, you know, normal functioning going on. And so from there, you know, it's, it's, it's really hard to say, you know, what the plans are when you're so unsure about 
what you're able to do, what you can do, and the direction that the country is going in. Mm-hmm. When you know, not only with just the pandemic, but with everything else we're seeing, you know, with the divi- the racial division and, and the 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 whole, you know, this whole thing, this in my opinion, just surrounded by hate. And so, um, we we still want to. Our our mission has never changed and will never waver. We're still 100% um, doing what we're supposed to do, but as far as, you know, how the future looks is still kind of sketchy and uncertain when we have so many unknowns and things that we can't uh, control. Yeah. I think that is uh, true for all businesses, as you said, and and all groups at this point, it's just uh, the work might be consistent, but how we go about attempting to do that work will most certainly be changing. Um, a question for, I mean, to, to go back like to before my daddy taught me that, um, before you wrote the book, before you started this organization, um, you know, you want to tell some more about growing up in Asheville and maybe attempt to paint a picture for two white people who moved here a year ago and are trying to do our part to understand Asheville's history? Certainly. Um, so to me, Asheville has changed tremendously, you know, over the last, you know, decade to, you know, 12 years. I mean, you might even say 15 years. It has changed. You know, growing up in Asheville, um, you know, and I just actually told a kid um, this yesterday, my, uh, my wife was on a panel and she spoke and I was there and, you know, I was saying, the young lady was saying that she's she's with all the racial tension and what's going on, she's really been more conscious and aware of herself being a black, being black and being a person of color in this country. I think for me, it was, it was never, you know, and I I can even say that the young, the people that I grew around, we never really had, you know, a lot of the things that we're dealing with now. Like I went to Asheville high, you know, I didn't go to Irwin or TC and I'm sure, you know, the schools are in the County when you know, when in, in 1995, when you graduated from like an Earl or a TC, you might've been one of 13 people of color. Well, that wasn't my situation. You know, we were really cool at Asheville High. We had, you know, everybody was cool, you know, you know, black, white, it didn't matter. You, you kind of, you know, you kind of rocked it. You know, I, I, have, I have friends to this day, and, you know, and actually, you know, we talk about this now. We were more joined in 96, 97, 98, you know, back in that era than we are now. Like now you go to Asheville High, and it's almost like back to being segregated again. You know, you have groups and cliques and, you know, and, and, and I, they were telling me this, like, you know, you know, the white kids don't really sit with the black kids and, and vice versa. And it's like, are you kidding me? Like, what happened? You know, like, this is it's, it's crazy. Like, we're going backwards, you know. So, you know, I wasn't really aware of anything, you know, and, and I will I will also greatly say that my 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 childhood, my dad and my mom, grow, you know, they, they protected me from that. So I didn't really, you know, and I, and probably I would say this too, growing up with the father that I had, who was kind of a local hero, you know, I might've not even been subjected to a lot of things just because of my last name or because of who he was, you know? So growing up here, it was cool. I could go anywhere. I had no problems. I was never racially profiled, you know, it was, you know, you heard about certain things, but it, it was, it was cool. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't like, you know, there was no division, at least from what I saw. The first time that I noticed Asheville being super white was after, so I went to two colleges. I went to the University of Tennessee, Chattanooga, my freshman year, um, and had a great time there. We made it to the Sweet 16 playing basketball, and 
Wow. But my, my next three years, I went to uh, NCCU, which is North Carolina Central University. Um, I have Mr. Joe Green sitting here. He went to A&T, which is not so great. Um, my, my, my HBCU was much better. But just throwing that out there. But, um, but yeah, going to NCCU, you know, which was a historically black college university, was really the first time in, in, in being in Durham and, you know, you know be, living in, in different places, spending a lot of time in Charlotte. It was the first time that I, I got a chance to see that there are not a lot of people of color in Asheville. It was like, wow, Asheville really is a lot of white people. Like, what's, what's happened? When did this? And so you're oblivious to it when you're living in it because you didn't know. And so what I would say is this, though. Over the last, you know, and, and a lot of people may say, well, you know, this stuff was always here. It was just hidden very well. It was, it was covert. You know, it was, and there very well may be true. It probably always was, you know, but again, you know, you're younger, you're not exposed to it. You don't see it. But what I will say is this, and this may sum it up in, in a nutshell. As a social worker who works for the county and have been working with the county for 17 years, as a, as a man who's a native of Asheville and who a lot of people knows, you know, for either basketball or the work that I've done or do with my daddy taught me that, from the legacy that my father left, from the legacy that I'm building, from the people that I know, there's still a glass ceiling in Asheville, North Carolina that I can't get through as a black man. And this is my hometown. And so, has there been situations or are there situations, do I see situations where color is played out? Yes, I do. It's, it's, it's very obvious now. And just from this, let me just, let me just throw this out to you. I've never been a conspiracy theorist. I've never been one that's what was me. I've never been that guy that you know, the white man is out to get me. And that's never been my case. You know, I've never been that guy, you know, to this day, you know, there's still a, a, a a, a faux pas about, you know, black people coming downtown Asheville. Why don't we see black people in Asheville? You know, so I'm not even, I've worked in Asheville, downtown Asheville. I, I don't have a problem. I'm comfortable in downtown Asheville where I know certain people who look like me aren't, you know? So I've, like I said earlier, I've been able to go anywhere in Asheville and, and feel comfortable, you know, within the city limits. Now as a social worker, there are places that I don't feel comfortable like Barnersville and Sandy Mush and, you know, the rural areas where, you know, you're right, I don't feel comfortable in those places. But, um, you know, you go 30 miles, you know, to Madison County, and you, you might not want to be a person of color there after hours, you know, this is the bottom line. Um, there are stories that I could share as a social worker when I was in Barnesville and have been told, like, you know, why are you out here? And you're not supposed to be out here. And if you're out here after dark, it's not going to be good for you and, you know, stuff like that. And so these things are true. But, um, the point that I'm trying to make is this: when you have, when you are the, you know, number two in the country in gentrification, behind Charleston, South Carolina, you have the fifth worst achievement gap in the country. Um, when you're talking about businesses, the city of Asheville from 2012 to 2017, uh, in that five-year span, uh, for um, supply diversity, gave away 118 million dollars um, for businesses. 115 million went to white-only businesses. 1.3 million went to Hispanic businesses, 580,000 went to African-American businesses. They paid the company to do the disparity study from Ohio, $380,000 to do the study for one year. They paid them almost more to do the study in one year than they gave the entire black community in five for their businesses. And so when you start to look at the disparities, when you start to look at the numbers, if you look, um, I think, you know, five years ago per capita, 
Asheville, North Carolina, uh, excuse me, uh, Biltmore Forest was the richest place in, in America per capita. You know, so these, you know, you have, when you have money, when you have resources, when you have, you know, you know, we only have 89,000 people living in Asheville, North Carolina. We have, you know, tourism dollars, $2 billion a year. Last year, um, you know, Asheville, North Carolina, we're on Forbes, the Forbes number six place in the world to visit. You know, 2015, 2016, Good Morning America dubbed Asheville, North Carolina, the number one place in America to visit. And then they came back the number one place in America to live. And so you see what's, you see all these things going on. But when you start to see the disparities, when you start to see that, you know, they're not, they're, it's not equity or equality or you know, you start to see all these things and it makes you wonder like, okay, this is my hometown, but really to be quite honest, either we're being systematically removed, there's no place here um, for you and do they, do the powers to be really care about you? And so these are things that are in my world that are, um, you know, prevalent. It's like, wow, like, okay, you know, I, I really growing up here, you know, again, either it was so um, covertly hidden or now it's like, you know, and, and maybe it's even just the climate of the country. You know, I'm not one to really get into politics, but since we're on the subject, you know, with our, you know, with, with the chief and commander, in my opinion, you know, spewing hate and division, is this just what's happening here trickling down? You know, you can look at it either way, either way, but again, when you start to see all the things that are not adding up, you know, when you talk about the business, you talk about the education, you talk about gentrification, you talk about all these things, you know, um, it, it's, you know, it, it is what it is. And it, it just speaks for itself. Yeah. Those numbers are so substantial that to, to your point, and I think this is your language, it's hard not to assume that there's some intention behind, uh, behind it. And that's eye opening for us. I mean, we, uh, for a long time, would have said, you know, admitted that we were in a honeymoon phase with Asheville. Like we moved here, we before moving here, we lived in Bed Stuy, Brooklyn. <clears throat> Excuse me, and you know, we're very aware. And one of the things that we we kept trying to like meditate on and and think about is the idea of like leaving a place better than you found it and act trying to in some small acts uh, or in some way add value to a community that we knew we were going to be transient in and one of our hopes was in moving to Asheville that we could actually or intentionally lay down some roots and attempt to to truly spend time uh creating value and and you know one of the sayings that I always think about is like leaving a place better than you found it because you don't know when you can come back this way again um and for the longest part of the last year, it was just honeymoon. And there, like we weren't necessarily uh, either seeing or choosing not to see any of the bad bits. Um, and I think that there's been a really powerful and important and something that we're thankful for is change over the last specifically two months during this pandemic and last several weeks. Um, that is going to empower us, I think, to be actually uh able to add value to this community over time let me add let me add two things really quickly so yeah. um i think it was 2000 maybe 16 i think it was 2016 17 we got approached to do a documentary on my daddy taught me that and they did a i think they did like a nine minute video clip and the name of the documentary was going to be called beneath the veneer 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so what they wanted to focus on was that, you know, Asheville, which Asheville does a very good job of exactly what you said. Um, they, you get sucked in and, you know, you, you see the, you see the commercials, you know, um, you know, just as a, as a, um, you know, tidbit, my cousin who lives in Atlanta, he said, man, I just saw a commercial about Asheville. He said, you know, it was, you know, it was, he said, I'm going to be honest with you. I didn't see one black person in the commercial, you know, one person of color. He said, so, you know, that, but that, that draws people here, particularly if you're like, okay, I want to live in a place. And, you know, so that's one thing, but, you know, when, like I said, Asheville draws you in to the beautiful mountains, the Grove Park Inn, the Biltmore House, and, you know, you know, let's, you know, the outdoors and stuff like that. But beneath the veneer, there's a lot going on that is, is really truly hidden, you know, and so, and Asheville does a good job of hiding it because our biggest, you know, our biggest, you know, revenue is tourism, you know, the tourism dollars. Is, is, and so we can't have tourists thinking that the, the locals or the natives are being treated, you know, some kind of way. So let's hide that. And so let's hide that by let's hide that by focusing more on the you know I, I talked about the Forbes magazine every year you know Rachel Ray Emerald we're on their top ten list of foods you know so you know there's all these great things happening in Asheville but at whose expense you know or who's suffering the most you know so and then I would love to say this too while I have the audience I appreciate what you said about you know coming in and, and seeing things and then you know this you know, being, you know, the pandemic and then the last couple of weeks. I think this is true, though, going forward. We people of color have been subjected to this for a long time, not just the last month or the last two weeks. And so while, you know, we appreciate particular, you know, to give you an example, they have over these last couple of weeks, we did a post um, about two weeks ago where we had a couple of the young men cleaning up. And so we have gotten outpour of support and that's great. We need it. We need support in a worse way. We appreciate it. We love it, but don't just support because of the, of the climate of the country. Yeah. Don't just support, you know, the next two or three weeks because, you know, Oh, you know, forgive me for saying it, but those poor black people and we're starting to see now and we, you know, Oh my, no, don't support. And then, you know, a month later or two months later, it's back to business as usual. Yeah. You know, like, Let's we you know what I tell people is this. You know, there has to be an intentional partnership between allies and people of color because we're not going to do it by ourselves. We're not gonna we have to be intentional on working together, bridging the gap, and removing those stigmas and the hatred or the 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 root or the, the mindset to divide. Because if that happens, then you know. You know, as much as you guys respect the program, as much as, you know, you guys are trying, what will happen is the world will put you here in the box and they'll put mm-hmm. me here in the box. And then we're supposed to fight each other because we don't look alike. Right. Yeah. And that's not and that's not how it's going to happen. We have to work together intentionally, not just because, you know, egos are high or excuse me, uh, emotions are high. But this has to be something that's ongoing to where a year from now I can say, Sarah, hey, how are you guys doing? What's going on? And, you know, this is what we've been doing. How have you guys been doing? Or you guys are like, look, we had this conversation with Keenan Lake on June the 18th and we visited his program three times. And this mm-hmm. is how those kids are doing. This is what's happening. So and then vice versa, you know, you guys need to check out, you know, this podcast and see what the good work is. So it has to be intentional and we have to be able to say that we're in this together in order for this to, su- to succeed and work collectively. That's my mm-hmm. opinion. Yeah. Let me ask you, are, are, do you think, do you feel optimistic with 
you know, I know that there's obviously a lot of awareness now and we want that to continue um, into the future, but are, are you optimistic because of everything that's happening now or, or what do you think is, you know, for the future? Um, a little both. I'm, I'm optimistic. So I think this, I think that, um, I think that George Floyd was, it, it was different. Okay. Mm-hmm. Have we seen police officers shoot and, you know, kill or whatever the case may be, you know, particularly black men of color, that's <laughs> been happening since Emmett Till. Okay, to, to be quite honest, yeah. Um, that has happened before. You know, um, there was just a, a recent situation where, you know, the young man got shot in the back in Atlanta, Georgia, last week. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, even after George Floyd, this stuff is still happening. I think the difference is this, though. I think the difference is the way it happened. So, you know, even George Floyd wasn't the first person to get choked out, or, you know you know, by police. We know that that happened with Eric Garner as well. But the problem that I think is, again, the eight minute video that showed this happening. And so it put onus on the world to say, you know what, this this can't be the case. Um, and so with that, I'm, opti- I'm optimistic saying going forward, I think seeing that in that light, it, it transformed some people's minds like, wow, like, you know, you hear about the shootings, I might have not paid attention to that or you know, what was going on, or, you know, maybe the guy was resisting arrest or, you know, whatever, but seeing a person in handcuffs with their back and someone's, you know, with their knee on their neck and all that kind of stuff, it just plays out differently in your mind. And it's a, it's a visual or it's like, we can't continue to do this. Mm-hmm. And so to your question, I think that there are, there are some things that are going to change intentionally. However, um, I also think that, again, this is just a hot topic. You know, this is the, this is the the flavor of the month, and what'll normally happen is that you know, typically what happens, and again, forgive me, Trump will do something outlandish, and then the world will be like, oh my God, I can't believe Trump did that, you know, and then then the then the, work, the media will shift, and mm-hmm. they'll talk about something that's happening in the media that, that doesn't pertain, you know, to either you know, black men or black people or Black Lives Matter, you know, that the whole thing will shift, and then it'll be on to the next one, and so I think that. Again, so I don't really think I answered your question. I think it's kind of in the middle. You know, I think that it's, I'm optimistic, but we've been here. Yeah. yeah. And so it's kind of more like the the proof is in the pudding. I, I would rather see it than, you know, than, than to say, okay, you know what? And so, yeah. Yeah. That makes perfect sense from, from where I'm standing. And one of the things that uh, I felt as you were talking through you know, vision setting what our relationship might grow into over the year to come is that like what I really will attempt to challenge myself. I want to, I want to, I want to model what it is to have that relationship that crosses, um, I guess, expectation or, or color boundaries, right? Like I, we, we can't be put into a box where we're meant to be enemies if, you know, multiple times a month I'm volunteering at my daddy taught me that. And, and then, right. and then the example that is set to the young people is Tony's cool. <laughs> it's not like, uh, it, it doesn't need to be much more than that. Like I respect that guy. He's, he shows up. Um, and so that is, um, I, I think that what I've, what I, what I'm interpreting from your work that is powerful is the, model that you set 
and the example that you set for young people. And I think that um, with all like long-term aspirations of change, it it's a, has a ton to do with what are you exposed to? What do you see modeled for you? Um, and and I, I, I feel that uh, I can't go back to kind of living in my little bubble um, and just trying to grow our business and, and on our own, make it in Asheville. Um, we have to do more than that. So Keenan, we're going to move a hard, <laughs> a hard, hard pivot, pivot into what we call the speed round, which is not really a speed round. It's just a few uh, questions that are a little bit more fun and, and potentially hopefully. <laughs> so, uh, Keenan, you've lived here your entire life. Tell us a little bit about, you know, if you had to identify one place in Asheville that you would take visitors to that you had friends or family coming in, where would you go? One place in Asheville, if, you know, to visit, you know, if it was bringing people here, let's see, where would I go? <laughs> wow. Um, I don't know. Like, I mean, it just depends on. So, what, what would the day look like? Yeah. Let's let's put it that way. What would yeah, you what would do? The day look like? Okay, so typically, so <laughs> that's sad. That's really sad. And I'll say that because so what happens is this, and you guys may not be privy to this. So people, you know, and, and people of color say this all the time. But you know, I have friends who come up from college and people who visit. And it's like, where are the black people? You know, that's just typically what they say. Um, one of the things that I've been advocating for and fighting for for a very long time is. You know, downtown, the YMI, which is the Young Men's Institute, used to be that place. You know, it's the second oldest African-American historic building in the country, but it's been gentrified. You know, even though the board and stuff like that is still trying to hang on, if you go downtown and look at the YMI, the space has been totally gentrified and there's no space, in my opinion, for people of color. I mean, it's just not, it doesn't look anything like it. There's no, you know, it used to be a place where you can hang out, you can get your hair done, you can do this. You know, there were black businesses and stuff like that. It's been totally gentrified. And so, um, so for people who come in out of town who look like me, it's like, well, there's nowhere that we can go to find people who look like us to hang out at. There's no businesses. There's no, there's no nightclub. There's no, you know, bar, you know, those areas. So typically what you'll do is probably go to the AC hotel to the rooftop or, you know, something like that, you know, hang out, go take them to your house and stuff like that. And so, you know, there's no real place um, that you can say, you know, it's like, well, where do people of color hang out, congregate and do things? And that's non-existent. Now, of course, uh, you know, and, and a lot of things are cultural, you know, black people don't do a whole lot of camping and hiking, you know, it's just the, that's just the, the, you know, the gravity of it. And so Asheville's a place to go camping and hiking, you know, and you know, stuff like that and outdoorsy stuff. And, you know, I'm, and, and, and from my world, you know, let me, let me rephrase that. I don't want to say black people because there are some black people like, I hike, I camp, you know, but mm-hmm. typically my friends are not going to be camping and hiking. They want to, you know, they want to do stuff, stuff differently. They want to, you know, go to stuff. And right now, of course, with the climate in the country, there's not much you can do, but pre COVID, you know, it's basically, you know, we can have a cookout, we can hang out amongst ourselves, we can talk and, you know, and, and do stuff like that. But there's no particular place that, that you would go in Asheville and say, this is where, you know, we congregate. Or even if, you know, 
if I wasn't a married man and I was, you know, looking for a nightlife or a fun life and to, to meet people and stuff like that, that's just, you know, it's not much going on. And so typically what happens is people move here and they have to drive to Charlotte for entertainment, you know, drive to Atlanta for entertainment um, and find, you know, if you're a person of color. Um, now, if, uh, you know, people who don't look like me come, come here, it's like, well, there's so much we can do. You know, we can we can just go downtown after five and, and it'll be, you know, it's a party, you know. So downtown after five literally is a party. And then, you know, there's there's uh, breweries on every corner. So we can go pick which one and go hang out at a brewery and, you know, have a good time that way. And so it just depends on the people. It depends on who you're trying to entertain. Um, you know, yeah. Thank if you. That makes yeah, that makes perfect sense. And thank you um, for that answer. Uh, a question for you is, is basketball still a part of your life today? Uh, not really. Um, you know, I thought I was going to be one of these old men who was barely able to walk and be at the Y, still trying to compete, and you know, and stuff <laughs> like that. But what ended up happening in my life, um, so at 35 is when I started the My Daddy Taught Me That program. And, and it was hard. Cause like I said, I, I just, you, you could have never told me at 30 or 34 or whatever that I would not be that guy at the Y still trying to live my Michael Jordan dreams. You know, yeah, never told me. In the pain, but, um, making right. young kids look small. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> trying you know, still, you know, 50 years old, still, you know, trying to show them, you know, whatever, still trying to prove that I got it. Maybe at 55, you know, have an ACL tear. Cause I yeah, blown, I, blown a knee yeah, out. Cause you have an after Yep, I'd have been that guy. But at 35, I decided to dedicate my life to the to the youth. Mm -hmm. And I almost, you know, I I didn't pick up a basketball. It was just crazy. It's crazy how God works because it was like, again, my love for basketball kind of <laughs> superseded and trumped everything for a while. And it was like, you know, and so at 35, I put the ball down and was like, okay, I'm, I'm investing in this program. And, you know, I, I never looked back. And so um, this program has you know, taking on that, that love that basketball, I guess, once had. And so, and then just seeing, you know, my love for people, you know, to be able to serve and, and, and help, you know, has been truly my life's work. And so um, I think that, you know, there are seasons in our life when, when God allows us to do certain things and basketball was an avenue for me to grow and, you know, it paid my way through college and traveled a little bit, but then it was like, okay, I learned a lot and saw a lot and met people, but now it's, it's a different phase of life. And so, yeah basketball is kind of I, I still love to watch it you know mm -hmm. I still watch you know college and, and NBA and you know I'm still very knowledgeable about the game and every did, now and again did, you know, did you have a favorite team uh I did you know I was a, a diehard Dwayne Wade fan Miami Heat was my, my team and once when Miami traded him to the Chicago Bulls that way that whole thing went down it rubbed me the wrong way and then I, I don't want to say I jumped on the bandwagon but I started loving the Golden State Warriors during that whole run and I can't say that I was a fan, but I was, I was, I was rooting for him. So, mm -hmm. yeah. So, but, um, you know, um, my, my college team was, I've always been a diehard, uh, Tar Heel fan. You know, we, we, we haven't been the best lately, but, um, but yeah, but, um, yeah, I, I still, every now and again, there's a kid in the program who thinks he's good and I get out there and test him and see what he knows and stuff like that. But that's, that's very far and few between Thank people you. have asked me about coaching and stuff like that. And yeah. It's, it, even with that, it's a thing. So when you play on a certain level, coaching to me 
is frustrating, particularly in this day and age, simply because our young folks, they don't take the time, some of our young folks don't take the time to put in the work. They want to be LeBron James and Kobe Bryant overnight. And so, you know, it's like, no, you got to spend countless hours. So that frustrates me. But then also, I, I, I think I will always have, like, you're not doing it right. Get out of the way. I'll do it myself. And so mm-hmm. that's not, and I'm too, I can't, I'm too old. So I got to get out. So it's like, no, I don't want to coach either. Yeah. Uh, I will train here and there, help out, give pointers and stuff like that. But no, I kind of let basketball kind of go. Yeah. And, and I feel like that coaching itch or it might be getting scratched in the work that you're doing. Um, right. And so that makes perfect sense. And uh, one of the thoughts that came up when you talked about Kobe or LeBron is that even as they were Kobe and LeBron, they were working harder than arguably anybody else to continue right. to be Kobe and LeBron. And that is most certainly missed uh, by most people, especially young people who don't know what Kobe did at, you know, 4 a.m. in the morning uh, right. in a gym. Exactly. All right. So last question. This is a question we ask every single one of our guests, which is if we had a magic wand or someone in our audience had a magic wand, what one thing would you ask for? So it's kind of like a genie in the bottle wish. Hmm. I think that's fairly easy. So first of all, uh, that's kind of loaded too, though. You got me. (laughs) Um, So so it's only one. I don't get like this, that, and third. I don't get one thing. Huh? Nope. Ask for three wishes. You can't wish for more wishes. That'd be savvy. You'd be the first to ask for multiple wishes, though. I love it. No. Um, so this is what I would do. Um, first of all, uh, so, yeah, that's bad. You put me into a box. This is so many one thing. <laughs> so. And it- it doesn't this isn't like a beauty pageant like best answer wins this is a moment in time where we're thursday morning you know yeah so look i'm just gonna cheat i'm just gonna tell you about five or six (laughs) but no um so this is the thing first of all you know my first priority as much as i love my daddy taught me that as much as i love being a social worker you know my first priority is my family and being able to you know make sure that my girls i have three girls i have a wife and two daughters making sure that they're safe and my mom, you know, um, so I have, a, I have four girls, you know, and so really being able to make sure that my family is okay and taking care of my girls, that's number one. Um, and actually being able to do a better job of that, you know, when you, when you dedicate your life to servitude, a lot of times your family takes a back seat. And so um, the second thing is, um, well, so the magic wand would include taking care of my girls, making sure that, you know, our youth and our and the people, parents, youth, you know, people in general, get the opportunities and service that they need. But then, you know, for me, I, I work two full-time jobs. So I'm still a full-time social worker because that's, you know, I, I love social work, but it also is my, my only paid revenue, my paid income. But what I would love to do is do my daddy taught me that full-time. I would love to see my daddy taught me that go national. I would love to see the program um, serve, you know, one of the things that happens within this program is that when we take these trips and we go on, you know, we show up in these places with 40 kids, 50 kids, people are like, oh my gosh, where's, you know, how are you even funded? How do you do this? You know, how is this happening? We need one of those programs here, you know, and so, you know, every quarter, at least, you know, every month or two, we get phone calls from different states and different cities. Like, look, we've read, we heard about you guys. Are you guys planning to start one in Charlotte? Are you guys planning to start one in Greenville, South Carolina? You know, what would it take to get one here? And so 
you know, what we've said is that we want to be able to do consulting and, and doing this nationally. But we first of all have to make sure that the foundation is, is built here first. We have to move to a program. We cannot continue to uh, be a program that's solely based on volunteers. It won't sustain itself. It won't work. We have to put people in positions that are being employed and play. I can't continue to be um, to do 100 percent of my daddy taught me that we have a pretty good board. Um, but, you know, when the program starts, I, I pick up kids. So we pick up kids before program. Um, which I leave work on certain cases, sometimes about 30 minutes to an hour early. I won't take a lunch. I'll leave work. I spend an hour picking up kids. We get to the spot. I spend the next two hours, you know, leading the discussions in the program. And then I spend another hour and a half dropping kids off at home. And so, you know, and so we, we, Leslie does the same thing with her program. And so in order for these programs to continue to grow and thrive, we have done, again, some really great work, but we have to really start being able to raise have more revenue to have a, 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 a funding stream where we have paid staff, we have um, people in positions to, to be a grant writer, to, to do these things. And so to have this program go national, I think would be amazing. Not only just from, you know, for, for the two standpoints, you know, to be honest, the first standpoint would be to truly have young people across the country benefit from what we're doing here in Asheville, North Carolina. And the second reason would be to see something that you nurtured and grew from from its infancy stage to take on a national presence would just be like, oh, my gosh, you know, the, the, the dream of the little man still works. You don't have to be a national corporation or the YMCA or, you know, something, you know, something like that to to do something nationally. You can start as a grassroots organization and build something. And this this is some, a model that has has standed the test of time and has has proven that. And so, you know, um, that that would be my my wish, my my magic wand wish. Wishes, I guess. I, I did kind of cheat, maybe, but yeah. <laughs> Thank you. That's uh, I think a great wish or wishes. So now for the actual final final question is how if a listener heard your story today, uh, fell in love, how do they connect with you on the internet, World Wide Web, or however is best? So the best way to connect with me is first of all cell phone. Um, that's 90% of the best way. And my phone number is area code 828-582-2261. Um, you can also follow um, us on Facebook. You can personally follow me, Keenan Lake, on Facebook. My personal Facebook is probably 80% of my daddy taught me that. Um, I try to live my life separately to a degree. Every now and again, I get so excited and I post stuff about my wife or my daughter. But, you know, we also have a My Daddy Taught Me That Facebook page. Um, and then you can follow us on um, our, our website, which is www.mydaddytaughtmethat.org. Um, and then we're on Instagram as well. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'm this, we have all those platforms that you can follow us, what we're doing, you know, see what we're doing. But what I also tell people is that, um, you know, either pre-COVID, you know, hopefully soon post-COVID would be um, we, we do not have a closed door policy come and check us out come see what we're doing you know shoot me a call like hey keenan you know i was thinking about coming to visit you guys and then i can give you uh i can give you you know some just depends sometimes we don't have program because i might get caught up at work as you know and can't and have to cancel program but so i tell people if you want to come and just see what we're doing hang out you know you know come and eat dinner with us we welcome the community to do that um so people can see people can know and then uh, people can start, you know, ultimately it's about building relationships with these youth. And so once you build relationships and build rapport, 
then, you know, things can go a long way. And so, and so, yeah. Great. Thanks so much, Keenan. We'll have links. Well, no, thank you guys. Thank you guys for having me on. I greatly appreciate it. Enjoyed it. And that was episode 61 with Keenan Lake of My Daddy Taught Me That. As always, if you'd like to learn more about anything we talked about in this episode, if you'd like to have links, get connected with Keenan, you can visit our show notes page at makingitinashville.com forward slash 061. And if you liked this episode, please let us know by leaving a review, if you could, on Apple Podcasts. There should be links on the player that you're using uh, to Apple Podcasts. By leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, you are uh, helping this episode get seen and heard across the internet. Um, And for that, we are thankful. And as always, uh, if you haven't already, please subscribe to our podcast. There are a number of ways that you can subscribe. Um, They're all listed on makingitinashville.com forward slash subscribe. We have an email newsletter. You can subscribe on your favorite podcast player and more. And one more time, we want to thank our season and episode sponsor, Range Urgent Care. Range has a uh, free one, like the first month of an annual subscription offer for you, our podcast listeners. If you go to Making It in Asheville, dot com forward slash range you'll learn more about range and the offer or alternatively you can go to rangeurgentcare.com and use making it in Asheville as a coupon code and get that first month of any annual subscription free thank you once again range and another great reason to join our email list is for events we announce our upcoming events to our email list typically first so you get first dibs on RSVPing uh, a lot of our events are what we call Monday Maker Mixer, which are our monthly social networking events that happen on the last Monday of the month. But we also have other workshops and things that are coming up in the works. So subscribe to our newsletter at makingitinashville.com forward slash subscribe. And you can also check out our events at makingitinashville.com forward slash events. And if you or someone you know would like to be a guest on this podcast, please do let us know. We have a very simple way to nominate either yourself or a friend or a community member that you would love to hear or share the story of. And you do that by visiting makingitinashville.com forward slash podcast. Very simple form to fill out right there. And uh, we look forward to hearing from you. And so episode 61 is the last interview episode of season four we're going to have a recap uh next week will be a a season four recap episode we'll go over the highlights of all of the episodes this season what a tumultuous uh first quarter of 2020 first quarter no in the second quarter season one 13 (laughs) weeks is it all the second quarter? Yeah, we started we started this season at the start of coronavirus. Our first OMG. episode with Nick Dodson. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Where is the time? Time gone? flies. <laughs> Holy smokes. Yeah. So Q two, twenty twenty, whirlwind. Such a whirlwind that I thought it was Q one. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, uh, looking forward to to spending some time and honestly sitting with these episodes and recapping them. So um, if you're perhaps new to the podcast and you made it all the way back here into the cheap seats of episode 61. We thank you for joining us. The next episode is going to be a great um, high-level recap of all of the episodes, tell you a little bit more about what's coming up in the future of making it in Asheville. We have some big announcements on a personal side for us, um, as well as, um, as on a professional side. It's our, our business is changing. So um, excited 
to talk to you next week. And until then, do good, be good. Sarah, high five. <laughs>